Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. Well, comrades, <clears throat> we live in exciting times. You know how I know? Well, I developed my notes for this presentation where I was going to explain to you the level of anger in society without an outlet. And then I had to change my notes uh, a bit, at least, because some of that anger has found an outlet. Uh, and this could be a movement, and it already is in many ways a movement that is a qualitative shift in the situation, but it could be a movement of epic proportions. And we will see in the, in the days to come. Um, more on that later, though. Um, so yeah, we live in, a, in an epoch, as we quite often say, of sharp turns and sudden changes. Um, and there is a reason for this. So a recent poll in early October said, what best they asked thousands of people in Canada what best describes their feeling towards the federal government. 54% said angry or pessimistic. Only 29% said optimistic or satisfied. Another poll asked if they thought the country was on the right track. You had 62% said the wrong track. Obviously, these are somewhat vague questions, but they give you a general outline of the way people feel about the situation is not good. They think things are going in the wrong direction. And if you remember, this is actually a complete 180 from 2020 where you had this COVID bump and this national unity thing, which we predicted that this would not last very long at all. And now you have a massive amount of anger in the population at the situation. However, you, you generally speaking, especially politically, have not seen an expression for this anger. At least on the left, you have not. Um, this is, you, ha you have a, I think we've noticed this. Uh, there's, it's reflected in a feeling of apathy. There's a bit of a doomerist thing amongst the youth. You've had many mass movements, climate strikes, the George Floyd protests, left-wing leaders rise and fall and betray, and people feel like there isn't anything you can do about it. There's cynicism, and there's a bit of a retreat from politics. But this cannot last forever, especially because, as materialists, we know the material reality, the economy, is fundamental at the end of the day. So what, what you may not know is that actually the COVID measures implemented in 2020, most notably the CERB, actually decreased wealth inequality for the first time in a while by a little bit because it basically raised the bottom up temporarily. Um, and this was after decades of increasing inequality. But now with the lifting of the COVID measures, what you have, according to Stats Canada, is on average gains in household wealth acquired over the previous year have been erased. That's Stats Canada. Just this year, Canadian household wealth fell by almost a trillion. Debt growth outpaced income gains for the first time in a couple of years. Households added 56 billion in debt just in the second quarter of this year. Now households have a record $1.82 in debt for every dollar they bring in in income. 
Household debt acts as a, it acts as a dead weight on the economy because it's a depression on spending, of course. This amounts to just household debt. I'm not talking about government debt or corporate debt. Just the, the debt that working class families have amounts to 105% of the gross domestic product of the country. So yeah, meanwhile, what you have is billionaires have increased their wealth by 57% since the beginning of the pandemic. And the 51 richest billionaires in Canada own as much as the poorest 40% of the country. So how can we explain this situation? Why is this happening? It's not just release, it's not just removing COVID measures, but it's also a phenomenon that we explained, and I hope people have reread our 2020 perspectives. We explained this phenomenon. The measures being implemented by the government in 2020, we said, would lead to an inflationary crisis. We predicted this. Inflation, key question today. We're seeing this with this strike of Ontario education workers. Inflation is the main question. So yeah, when, 20, when the crisis hit in 2020, what did the bourgeoisie do? Did they say, let the market figure itself out? No, they rushed to save the system. They bailed out the capitalist system. In April, April of this year, uh, there was a stat that the government released that said since the crisis hit in those two years, they had spent $576 billion in COVID measures, mostly in corporate bailouts. Um, at the time, what did we say in 2020? We said government spending is no permanent solution to the crisis and only delays the inevitable, ultimately making the situation worse by adding all sorts of distortions with inflation and massive debt. That's what we said in our perspectives in 2020. This really, these measures implemented by the government were really quite unprecedented. Although that word is losing meaning <laughs> as everything these days is rather unprecedented. So, but, the, but the bourgeoisie, their politicians were doing things and have been doing things that they said they would never do again. Measures implemented that in the past led to mass inflationary crises in the 1970s. And we said that this is exactly what these measures would lead to. The printing money, the massive injection of money into the economy to bail out businesses, etc. Um, now, at the time, the Bank of Canada basically downplayed the risk of inflation, saying it wasn't going to lead to inflation. Now, what are these very same people saying? They're saying, oh, well, there's inflation, obviously, but whose fault is it? Workers' wages. That's the fault for inflation. So what are, what are the strategists of capital doing to uh, help people deal with the rising cost of living. They're resisting wage increases. Seems like a great way to help people, right? Um, so th they're arguing that if you increase wages, this is actually gonna create a wage price spiral and it will lead to massive inflation. This is a nonsensical argument. We've we have articles that we've written articles about this. Probably the best way to explain it is inflation has reached a 40 year high this year. 8.1%. Wages, meanwhile, only grew by 3.1. So basically, workers have taken a 5% wage cut just this year in their real wages. What does that have to do with inflation? <laughs> um, so yeah, workers have suffered a 5% wage erosion. And this is a key question in the class struggle. At the same time, a lot of people on the left, the reformist left, were arguing 
that don't worry about the debt. Um, don't worry about it. It won't lead to inflation. Don't worry about inflation. Or now, now people are saying uh, it's just corporate profiteering, right? It's just corporate greed. It's not inflation. It's corporate greed. So all of a sudden, randomly this year, corporations decided to profiteer and price gouge way more than normal. Uh, as we explained in 2020, a massive increase in the money supply without an equal or commensurate increase in the production of goods would lead to inflation. And this is the main driver. Of course, there is corporate profiteering. Many corporations are taking advantage of this. There is also supply chain crisis and whatnot, but you can't just boil it down to corporate profiteering. And inflation is real. Like I said, it peaked at 8.1% this summer. Now, they've implemented measures to try to get inflation down. It's at 6.9. So they've barely dented the inflation. And for basic goods and services, it's actually much higher. F basic food, on, on average, has 14.5% inflation. Butter, 20%. Pasta, 21%. Gas, 35%. And obviously this hits the poorest workers the hardest. Now there's another question that hasn't been talked about much over the past couple of years that, that used to be a big key question and is becoming once again, is going to become one of the main questions, if not the main question, debt, government debt in particular. We have to remind ourselves that uh, this was the main driving, driving force behind the wave of austerity after the 2008-2009 crisis, the question, who would pay? The IMF argued, make workers pay. That was the main question behind the movement in Greece. The drastic austerity measures in Greece that led to 30 general strikes and the elected election of the, the uh, Syriza government. This was the main driving force behind the 2012 student strike as the Quebec Liberal government were trying to offload the cost of the crisis onto the backs of a generation of, of youth in Quebec. This also has been the main driving force behind most major revolutions. Comrades probably know the French Revolution. This was the main driving force. Who pays for the debt? So we should keep our eye on this. The current levels of debt, of government debt, are a ticking time bomb. So federal government debt in 2019, before the pandemic, was 685 billion. This is just the federal debt. In 2020, it rose to 884 billion. In 2021, it rose to 1 trillion 314 billion. And in 2022, this year, it's risen to a record 1 trillion 455 billion. It's almost as much as the GDP, just the federal government debt. The consolidated government debt in Canada, that includes all layers of government, not just the federal government, is 2737000000000 That's 137% of the country's GDP. We're not including household debt in this or corporate debt. You're just talking about the government debt. This will become a key question. So what mainstream economists said, in 2020, when they started wrapping up this unprecedented uh, deficit spending, debt expenditure, was we don't need to worry about the debt um, because interest rates are low, right? 
Well, I don't know if you've been paying attention. <laughs> we'll get into that in a second. On the left, you also had people like, uh, well, Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois of Quebec Solidaire made this argument. So did Jim Stanford, who's a left-wing economist. Worked, he, he does like uh, a lot of the basic economic projections for trade unions and whatnot. They claimed you don't need to worry about the debt because in World War II, you had a lot of government debt. But then, and they didn't pay it off, which is true, but the economy grew so quick that the government debt as a, as a proportion uh, or when, as a ratio to, to, govern, uh, to the GDP decreased. That's what the main argument that was made by left-wing economists and left-wing politicians. So basically what they were saying is they were predicting a post-war boom. Now what do we have? Well, we're headed for a recession. <laughs> That's exactly what we said would happen. So incredible argument actually that you see is reformists were actually had more faith in capitalism than the capitalists. No capitalists were predicting a post-war boom. Just left-wing economists were predicting a post-war boom to justify saying, don't worry about the debt. But you have to worry about the debt. The debt is a, it's a real thing. Um, so we, at the time, criticized this as wishful thinking. You can read, we have many articles in our perspectives and whatnot at the time. And we should be confident we have been proven absolutely correct on this as we head into a recession. Again, we'll come back to this. So yeah, what are they doing about the inflation? Well, in order to de deal with this 40 year uh, high inflation rate, the Bank of Canada is doing one of the only things they can possibly do, they're raising interest rates. And as I said, <laughs> the only way they could afford this massive amount of debt was with the record low interest rate. But now they're rising it, they're increasing the interest rate massively. Uh, the reason why they're doing this is that inflation is driven by too much money in the economy, so too much demand, uh, which drives up prices. So one of, the one of the things that the managers of capitalism can do is raise the, the central interest rate. So the central bank determines the, the base interest rate, uh, and raising it acts as a deterrent to borrowing. So it acts on a deterrent for new money getting in, in, uh, inserted into the, into the economy. And generally speaking, that acts as a downward pressure a deflationary pressure in the economy. Uh, and it has, somewhat. So the interest rate has gone from 0.25% to 3.75%, and the Bank of Canada says it will probably go up to 4.25 by the end of the year, at least. According to the Bank of Canada Governor Jeff, uh, Tiff Macklem, he said, our mandate is price stability. We are a long way from that mandate. So basically, they, he says they're going to keep increasing the interest rate to try to get the inflation under control. What is the effect of this? Well, remember that debt? Once affordable debt is now very quickly becoming completely overbearing, unaffordable debt. This don't worry about it argument now seems like a kind of ridiculous one. Um, both government debt and household debt um, are going to become a massive problem, are already starting to become a massive problem for the government and for individuals and for families. So we could be witnessing, and I think in many ways we already are, a perfect storm of, we'll have a perfect storm of inflation, high interest rates, combined with a recession, <laughs> and austerity measures, actually. We'll be back on the table sooner or later. As the former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney has said recently, this is a time to reduce deficits not increase them. So they're encouraging Trudeau to stop it. They're still running deficits generally, to pull back. 
So the magic money tree will no longer bear fruit. What is this? You cannot avoid the crisis of capitalism. You can only delay and make it far worse in the future, which is what we're seeing now. Now, Canadian capitalism, which historically has had room to maneuver and avoid the major effects of the crisis of capitalism, unlike some other countries, uh, and, and therefore avoid class struggle and avoid revolution, is rapidly losing this room to maneuver. So yeah, really what we're witnessing right now is a double-edged sword. You have inflation, at the same time you have rising interest rates. High inflation means a crisis for an increasing layer of workers. It slowly pushes you over the edge, starting with the poorest, of course. As, uh, as Macklem, uh, the, the governor of the Bank of Canada, has, has recognized, he said, it's been a long time since we had high inflation and we're rediscovering that it corrodes the social fabric. It does, and it leads to class struggle. They know what this leads to. However, what does increasing interest rates do? So while rising inflation uh, affects everyone, it specifically pushes the poorest into abject poverty, right? But increasing interest rates affects a much wider layer of the working class middle class people, working class people with houses, with mortgages, are going to start being squeezed by this. Um, so yes, uh, according to the Bank of Canada, anyone re re renewing their mortgage will see a 30% increase in their monthly payments. Um, and approximately 50% of mortgages in Canada are on what is known as a five-year fixed term, so they'll have to renew soon enough. Um, it's probably worse with other types of debt, actually, that are just the payments are increasing, right? So basically, workers are getting squeezed from the rising cost of basic necessities, as well as a rising cost of servicing the debt that they hold. This is a double-edged sword. This all leads to what we're already starting to see in Canada, polarization. Now, Canada is generally known as a land of compromise. Indeed, the foundation of the Canadian state is peace, order, and good government. And most of the time in the history of Canada, the various parties, left, right, whatever, conservative, NDP, liberal, have been able to reach compromise, right? The unions have been able to reach compromise with capital as well. Um, and they've been able to do this because capitalism has been relatively stable and prosperous, comparatively. But this is all changing. You have, and you have mass polarization to the left and to the right as become, people become increasingly angry at the status quo. And the establishment, and I would argue the establishment on both sides of the political spectrum, have been trying to keep a lid on this. Got many examples of this. On the left, you have an abject failure of reformism in the mainstream. We have with an, this level of anger in the population that is increasing. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that it's going to continue to increase. The, uh, the reformist leadership has come up with the wonderful idea that they should essentially merge with the liberals. Uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, and, the, and the, the federal NDP have have, are basically propping up the liberal government in the confidence and, with the confidence and supply deal, which we described earlier this year, was not worth it. It's not worth it. They're selling themselves too short at a time of unprecedented economic crisis and social polarization. 
So what, but what has materialized? Um, Bill C31, which is supposed to be targeted support for households. Well, basically what this amounts to is $41.67 will go to families making under a, com under a combined 35,000 a year, which is a very small number of people will get $41 a month. Um, Bill C30, targeted tax relief, will double the GST rebate for six months. So, you know, you're gonna get a few hundred bucks. I think, okay, that's, sing individuals and families will get a few hundred bucks, which is welcome, but I mean, that's kind of a joke when you see what's happening with rising interest rates and inflation, right? And this is only temporary, and people won't get it until the end of the year. The dental plan, the dental plan was the big one. Um, Part of Bill C-31 is also so-called dental care, which the NDP is saying is dental care. Actually, Don Davies, an NDP MP and health critic, bragged that this is the single biggest expansion of public health care in 60 years. Um, but what is this? It's not dental care, actually. It's not dental care. Um, it's not a universal dental care plan. It's a stopgap measure to give parents who do not have access to dental insurance. So it's kind of like Obamacare, actually. Probably, I don't even think it's as good as Obamacare, actually. <laughs> uh, and it, it only applies to kids under 12, and only if their family makes under 90,000. So a combined 90,000. So it's uh, basically means-tested, massive bureaucracy you have to wade through to fill out forms to prove that you're eligible for this thing that's not even that much. So is it worth it? this worth it to prop up the liberal government till 2025 in this context of economic and political instability? No, it is definitely not. And there is, the chances are that the liberals were going to do these very minor things anyway. And they're using the NDP as a left cover. This opens up the opportunity for the right populists, for in particular, Pierre Polyèvre, who is the new conservative leader, which I will get back to in a second. Um, so yes, the failure of reformism. Well, we've seen this quite spectacularly in Alberta, which has been in a crisis for many, many years, economic and political. The labor leadership have shown an incredible lack of fighting spirit. And honestly, they could have brought down the UCP government many times, many, many times. People were looking to fight. Um, Instead, they've allowed them to carry out a palace coup to take Kenny out and to, well, to quote Jason Kenny, allow the lunatics to take over the asylum. Um, we'll get back to that in a minute when we talk about right populism. Um, probably a good example, one of the best examples we have of the failure of reformism is in British Columbia. Um, now, many people were undoubtedly happy when the BC Liberals were gone. Horrible conservative, uh, government attacking working class people, nearly provoked a general strike in 2005. Um, people were happy that these, these rich bastards were gone. But now you got the NDP and people are asking themselves, what the hell is this? What is this? Is this a left-wing government? Is this a social democratic government? Is this a labor government? This government and the labor bureaucracy that backs them up have sunk to new lows. They betrayed on pretty much everything. Uh, they betrayed in environmentalists with the Ferry Creek blockade and many other things. They've betrayed in the indigenous people at Wet'suwet'en. And now, more fundamentally, they betrayed the trade unions. That's their traditional base. And 
They have had help from their friends in the labor bureaucracy to do so. You had the BCGU strike, uh, which is public sector employees, 95% strike vote in support of action to win a cost of living adjustment, COLA, which we've been, we've been arguing for. 95% strike vote. The BCGU uh, presented a deal to their members that was a betrayal of this and um, only 53% voted in favor, which tells you something. The leaders argued firmly in favor of this sellout deal and they could only convince just over half of the members, which they celebrated as a victory. Scandalously, information has now come out that the president of the BCGU union that was negotiating with the NDP government is on the BC NDP executive. Is this a conflict of interest? <laughs> Convincing your members to accept the sellout deal? Uh, you cannot make this stuff up. But this is the new lows in the betrayal of reformism. Another one, John Horgan was the premier, NDP premier of uh, British Columbia, has resigned as leader this summer, probably getting out before things got too tough. Um, and it, look, it looked like there was gonna be a simple coronation of David Eby, the establishment candidate, who said the inspiring words in the city that has the highest rent in the country and is the eviction capital of the country. He said, British Columbians shouldn't expect any radical departures if I'm successful. Well, he has been successful, but how, uh, how did he become the leader of the BC NDP? So the left fielded a candidate, which really upset EB. He even made it clear, oh, this is unfortunate. It's gonna take me a few more months to get into office now. So there was basically an eco-socialist candidate. She openly said she was a socialist. Anjali Aparadai, she ran, she criticized Horgan, she criticized the NDP establishment for their record, um, and, and, and actually had some enthusiasm in her campaign, and many, many new members. It's something that we haven't seen in a long time. Kind of like Corbinite candidate, to be honest. Surge in volunteers inspired thousands of people to get involved to sign up to the NDP after many had torn up their membership cards. So what did the NDP bureaucracy do? They said, wonderful, democracy, we'll have a vote, right? Nope. The new Democratic Party disqualified Anjali, uh, and it's clear why they did this. She would have won, probably. That EB had no enthusiasm behind him. People were very mad, and they disqualified her. They didn't want a Corbyn-type situation, so they're keeping the lid on this, uh, uh, on the, the, the polarization, right? The radicalization. Quebec. Well, we just had an election in Quebec. You might not have been paying attention because it wasn't very interesting. Um, it was a strange election. Uh, reminded, it reminded me a little bit of the federal election last year uh, with a similar result. Just produced almost this, a very similar result. Quite boring. It's, and you, if you watched any of the debates or what the parties were saying, it was almost as if the pandemic never happened and there wasn't a massive crisis. Um, Quebec Solidaire, that made serious gains the last election on pretty bold left-wing demands. Uh, they kind of set the tone for the election. They moderated themselves in their discourse. It, you can even see this with the ele election signs. For the first time, they had signs, free education, right? Very clear. Um, this time they had vague election signs, you know? Solve the housing crisis. Well, everybody says they want to solve the housing crisis. Uh, they said they were preparing to govern. They've been talking like this. That's what reformist parties do when they, and they, they, you know, they, they then have to moderate. But so much for that, they ended up with pretty much the same amount of seats, failed to get anywhere. 
Instead, what you had is the liberals and the Parti Québécois, which had been the establishment parties in Quebec for like 40 years, they, lo they, they lost more support. But it didn't really go to QS, actually. It mostly went, seemingly, it went to the, the, the farther right, to the Conservative Party of Quebec, which although they failed to gain any seats, they had almost as much votes as the other, the other three opposition parties. Um, and the CAQ still enjoys relative popularity. The key word is relative, and I believe temporary. <laughs> um, and this is, uh, what, as we've said, for all intents and purposes, QS, they, they put themselves forward as if they are part of the establishment. Get this sorry. The establishment doesn't really want them, but they want, they want to be a part of the club, right? Um, you see this most clearly. I don't know if you, you saw this. We, we published articles about it. Uh, there was a bit of a mini crisis politically in Quebec because not the Parti Québécois, not Quebec Solidaire, the Parti Québécois said, we're not going to swear allegiance to the king. Correctly, they said this. You shouldn't. They should not. It's a principled question, right? And then QS jumped. Oh, say, we won't swear too, right? Because it can't be outlefted by them. <laughs> then what happened? Well, they, they went back. They said, oh, well, we'll go, go into the National Assembly and put forward a resolution to try to resolve the crisis. But the, the government had said they don't want to resolve. No, you have to, they're not budging on it. So basically, they capitulated. Um, they're, they're trying to work on a compromise solution with all the establishment parties. Um, similar thing happened federally. The Bloc Québécois correctly put forward a resolution saying you, shouldn't, you should break ties with the monarchy, you shouldn't swear allegiance to the king. Jagmeet Singh courageously abstained. <laughs> Some of the NDP lefts voted in favor of that resolution correctly, but Jagmeet abstained. I think that sums up his political career right there. <laughs> Don't want to be too offensive to the king, right? Uh, so this situation has led to, and we've, we've been describing this over the past couple years, directly to a rise in right-wing populism. If the anger doesn't go left, some of it's going to go right. We saw this earlier this year with the convoy. Um, it, was a, it was a populist movement that at the beginning had a semblance of support amongst a layer of working class people that were looking to fight back, right? Um, and it's, so right-wing populism is rearing its ugly head all over the country precisely because there's no labor leadership. Until now, there is some labor leadership now, which we will get into. Don't want to be just pessimistic. Um, so the most clear example of this politically is Pierre Polyev, the new conservative leader who stormed to power, crushing all opposition. The conservative party establishment just gave up and mostly rallied behind him, probably tried to control him. He's had big rallies of uh, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of new conservative me party members, unprecedented actually. They're not known to be a party of normal people that join, you know. Um, now, why has he done, how has he been able to do this? Well, it's, it's similar to the Trump phenomenon. It's not so much what he's proposing, it's what he's criticizing. He's making critical points against government that people hate. He said this, the following. He said, the government has ballooned the assets of the billionaires, sounds like Bernie Sanders, doesn't it? Uh, and the debts of our children and the cost of living of the working class. 
I haven't heard the NDP use the working class very much, but you got the right using it. They are smart. They know what they're doing. They did that with the convoy too. They framed it as a working class movement. It of course wasn't, but they are intelligent. They know you have to win the workers. So we need to win the workers. The left needs to win the workers, orientate to the working class. So Polyev has denounced the liberal, the liberal NDP coalition. Uh, the problem with this is that it's having some traction because the NDP can't very well oppose a government that they are essentially a part of. So all the anger, why would the anger go to the NDP? Jagmeet posted, he makes these, these left-wing posts denouncing the government and the billionaires online and says he said that he made a tweet earlier this year, said the system is rigged. And Polyev tweeted back saying, this, yes, the system is rigged for the rich, but you are the system, Jagmeet. Uh, and you can see that that actually, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to people, right? And that's, it's unfortunate you don't have that left leadership, but we have to understand this phenomenon. Um, another example of this, the new UCP leader, Daniel Smith, this is very similar. I hope comrades come in on the discussion on this. She's promising to pass the Alberta Sovereignty Act. It's actually funny, I read it, it's actually very similar. It's like he took notes from René Lévesque. It is very similar to Sovereignty Association. It's not independence, it's just we're not gonna let the federal government mess around, right? Um, and there, in particular, she claims to be against the Global Woke Establishment and the Trudeau-Singh-Notley Coalition. Um, but this could actually have some impact. We will see. Uh, maybe not in Alberta because they're in power. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's another example of this right-wing populism that the Conservative Party wasn't able to stop. The establishment wasn't able to stop, right? Um, so yeah, what you have is people looking for an outlet, people looking to fight, people angry, they're looking for a political outlet. Unfortunately, because of the betrayal of reformism, it looks like the, the dynamic will be one of right populism. Uh, uh, for the coming period. You know, something can always change, of course. Um, that doesn't mean that that's gonna be the only thing, as we can see here in Ontario. Um, uh, but yeah, another, to go back to the economy briefly, I mentioned the recession. So the RBC predicts we're gonna enter a recession in the first quarter of 2023. According to the finance minister, Christia Freeland, she said, mortgage payments will rise, Businesses will, business will no longer be booming, and our unemployment rate will no longer be at its record low. So they're predicting working class people will suffer. Uh, actually, Tiff Macklem, the governor of the Bank of Canada, said a recession was necessary to combat inflation. Wonderful. Make you poor so you can't spend as much. That's what he says. That's basically what he means, uh, which will bring inflation down. Uh, now, we are headed for a recession, which could be the perfect storm of record debt, high inflation, rising interest rates, and austerity, as I've said already. Now, this could lead actually to layoffs, which will be an extra thing that get added in. Well, workers have had actually relatively better bargaining power because there's been this so-called labor shortage. That could actually be, and that could end. So that will put a downward pressure on wages, right? Um, so the anger that we are seeing right now, we, we have to get this through our heads, comments, is frankly nothing. It's nothing. You're going to see, look at Britain, look at Britain. Britain is our future. You're going to see, I'm not saying that the monarchy is going to move over here or something like that. I mean, Britain, the class anger, the political instability, that is the future of our country. Um, so yes, 
inevitably the anger will find an outlet. And if it's blocked on the political scene in the left by reformist compromise and betrayal, the industrial front is starting to open up. So strike statistics. This year, 1,887,374 workdays have been lost to strike action. This is an increase uh, of 563,000 from last year. This is according to Statistics Canada. Um, and this is higher than any year since 2009. And this year will likely surpass 2009 because of the current strike movements that happened by, at the end of the year, which will make it the highest strike year since 2005, in which you had a general strike movement in British Columbia and a general strike movement in Quebec. So this is what is happening on the industrial front. What we said in 2020 was inflation equals class struggle. And we were entirely right, and we've been making that point. Earlier this year, we made that point. Inflation is going to lead to class struggle. It is leading to an increase in class struggle as workers get squeezed. I already mentioned the BCGU strike. They were demanding COLA. Uh, this is a common and recurrent theme. Uh, all workers are getting a wage cut. Normally, the normal period you've had in negotiations, and maybe you get 1%, 2% a year. It's going to be, that's, a, that's five, 6% wage cut a year. Not, it's, we're not talking about getting ahead. You're talking about just to stay, just to, just to not lose anything, right? So this is, the crisis of capitalism cannot be avoided. That is what we're seeing. The most clear and current strike that I'm sure we all want to discuss is the Toronto education workers strike, QP 4400. The key issue in this strike is inflation. Workers have seen their wages erode over the past decade or two, actually, and this has accelerated in the past year with inflation. This is already some of the poorest workers in the province, making $39,000 a year on average. The union came into this demanding an increase of 11.7% a year. To make up the wage erosion and make sure our inflation doesn't erode wages any further. This is unacceptable for capitalism, and it's unacceptable for their representatives in government, which is why they're acting the way they're acting. So Doug Ford and Stephen Lecce, in their own words, said, what happens with QP sets the tone for the rest of the bargaining with the rest of the workers. We entirely agree. This does set the tone. We need to set the tone, not let them set the tone. So they are trying to set the tone by ramming through a crappy deal uh, and send a signal to the rest of the labor movement and the rest of society. And this is, again, unprecedented what is happening, but we should get used to it. We live in unprecedented times. So before the strike even began, on Monday, they tabled back-to-work legislation. Now, this is not the first time we have seen back-to-work legislation, and it won't be the last, but this is actually uh, the first, if not one of the first times we've ever seen a government use the notwithstanding clause, which, if you don't know what that means, it means notwithstanding your constitutional rights. We will take them away, and you can't challenge that legally uh, for five years, basically. So they, they know that they're violating their rights. They said that right at the beginning, before the strike even, even began. They've taken away the constitutional right to collective bargain. They're not even going to binding arbitration. This means that not only the right to strike was quashed, but the right to bargain, period, was squashed. Meaning 
You don't have a union, fundamentally. Um, so yes, on Thursday, there was a media scrum with Fred Han, Han, who is the president of QP Ontario, the Public Employees Union, and Laura Walton, another union leader. And they actually explained, it's a very good media scrum. They're actually very combative. Haven't heard trade union leaders talk like that in, geez, I think in 2005 in British Columbia, I might've heard something like that, but I haven't heard them talk like that for a long time. Uh, they actually explain in the interview that they, they, they threw another offer to the government where they lowered their demands by 50% and the government threw it back in their face. These arrogant ogres just threw it back in their face that we're, we're going to crush you. That's, what basically the, that's basically the message. And that reacted back on the trade union leaders who are mad and they're, they're channeling that anger of the working class. So this is not a normal negotiation, but I think frankly, this is the new normal. We should get used to this sort of thing. Um, normally you sit at the table, give or take, maybe you have binding arbitration, you get a couple of percent or something like that. Uh, but, and work workers would maybe grudgingly accept it like they did with the BCGEU deal. Um, but this time the government took all of those options off of the table. And if the union leadership wanted to, and if they want to capitulate, they, they basically have to do it in the most craven fashion, in the most cowardly fashion. So they, to their credit, have come out swinging. They're, they're channeling that anger of the workers. They're looking to fight and they have overwhelming support, I would argue. Uh, yesterday, or no, the day before, I took my dog to the dog park. Everybody at the dog park is talking about the strike and they all support the workers. Just people that normally never talk politics. My neighbors randomly said, this government hates kids. I heard them talk the other day. This is just anecdotal evidence, but I think it's important. Uh, and yes, I do think, in the words of Fred Hahn, he said, he told the government, he was warning them, he's like, you don't know what you have started. I think that is true. And, and they said, you have awoken a giant. They have awoken a giant. The Ontario working class has not moved in any significant way since the 90s, basically. It is a giant, it's the biggest working class in the country. And it has, they have militant traditions and they're starting to rediscover them. So there was an online poll before the law was passed that said of, they, they polled 20,000 people. I know it's an online poll, it's not scientific, but I think it's all we got, that's all I could find. S of, of the 20,000 people polled, 65% support the union. And this was before they passed the law. You can imagine it's much higher, much, much higher. So the government's basically alienated everyone. They've even alienated like the petty bourgeois liberal crowd who are all upset that they're tearing up constitutional rights. If you're alienating the petty, the petty bourgeois liberals, you do. I saw some people on the demonstration, lawyers on strike, that's what they said. I, was, I, was, I, I had never seen that actually, it's quite incredible. So they're basically throwing bourgeois legality out the window. Interestingly, this is also not just an Ontario issue. This is actually, the labor movement across the country is up in arms. We already said some students in Edmonton, of all places, have, pr have protested in solidarity with the workers. There was a press conference yesterday of some of the Quebec major unions where Daniel Boyer, who is not known as some super radical union leader, he's the leader of the biggest union, FTQ, he said, if we must go to Toronto, we will go to Toronto. <laughs> Which if you know Quebec, people don't like Toronto and Quebec. So, so. <laughs> That means a lot. Uh, 
They also said it's up to the, it's for the entire Canadian labor movement to mobilize. So it's cutting across the national divide. Normally, you got Quebec politics that does its own thing, and the politics of the rest of the country completely different. But this is, it's, it's uniting people. You can see it, the working class unity, the international sentiment that it's, an injury to one is an injury to all. And it's starting. It's starting. It's just the beginning, I believe. So that is what is happening in Ontario. Yesterday at the rally, the Fred Hahn, the president of QP uh, Ontario, said that a general strike was possible. We don't know if that's possible. I haven't heard union leaders talk about a general strike in a while. Um, but yeah, could be on the table. I think that might be necessary to defeat this law. So, well, there, generally speaking, has been a bit of a depressed mood. I think it's starting to shift, and we're going to see more and more strikes like this as people look to fight back. And we shouldn't always think that leaders always betray. They're all a bunch of bastards. That's not true. You're starting to see people stand up, and you're starting to see the ranks, the pressure of the ranks, uh, find a point of expression in left-wing union leaders that stand up and say enough as enough. And the economic conditions that I've described are acting as a pressure cooker. And they will create mass class battles. Reformist betrayal, uh, compromise union leaders will not be able to hold it back forever. And we must prepare ourselves for this inevitability. And again, I want to say, follow the developments in the United Kingdom. Follow developments in Britain. Anarchy in the UK. This is what we are seeing. It is absolutely unprecedented. The birthplace of capitalism proper, the big, one of the biggest empires that has ever existed, is crumbling. It's being torn apart with class polarization. They had three prime ministers and a monarch go in a week. <laughs> or sorry, in eight weeks. And I believe Britain shows our future. So we should expect more polarization, more anger. And we should not, if there, you know, we get some reports that like people were a bit depressed, not really wanting to get involved. That is inevitable. You will have moments like that. We should not succumb to that. We have revolutionary optimism because we look for the future. When we look at the current moment, actually, of working class people in Ontario, working class people are rising up and they will rise up when they want to. <laughs> uh, and so, yes, we should be absolutely optimistic for that. And we should prepare. We should prepare for movements like this. So as Marx described, people will tolerate a socioeconomic system as long as it develops the productive forces of humanity. But once it fails to develop the productive forces of humanity, it enters into a period of decline. And those very productive forces revolt against the system, ushering in an epoch of revolution. The writing is on the wall. That is what we are talking about here. We will have revolution in Canada. We are already starting to see the initial shots of mass class battles. This is the epoch we are living in, comrades, and we must prepare ourselves for that. Thank you. Get ready. 
for International Marxist Radio, the official podcast of the International Marxist Tendency, Marxist.com. A society which can live in harmony with nature, develop the productive forces without destroying the environment, institutions of international capital, the markets for example, the IMF, capital comes to the wall dripping blood and dirt from its every port. Hi, I'm Joe Attard, an activist with the IMT, writer for Marxist.com, and the host of a brand new podcast series, International Marxist Radio IMR. We here at Marxist.com are so excited to bring you this new show, which will offer all the best Marxist news, theory, and analysis that you've come to expect from our articles in audio form. And why are we launching this series now? Simply put, 2022 was a watershed in the history of world politics. Capitalism is in its deepest ever crisis, and the global situation was turned upside down. You have the Ukraine war, the cost of living crisis, insurrectionary movements in one country after another, from Sri Lanka to Iran... The year ended with the congressional coup against Pedro Castillo and the mass protest movement in response by workers and peasants. Simply put, the class struggle is intensifying. The crisis is accelerating. This is a podcast for revolutionaries. We need to equip you with the analysis and ideas necessary to navigate this tumultuous new period and fight to change the world. And on top of that, we know there's a hunger for Marxist theory and education. Our philosophy is the only one capable of really making sense of what's going on in the world. And we're going to be bringing you all sorts of discussion on theoretical topics from economics to history to philosophy to science and more. We already have so many amazing episodes that we can't wait to share with you. Episode 1 is going to land in January 2023, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast at your preferred streaming platform. We're available on all the big ones. And in the meantime, help us spread the word. Get on social media, share this ad, share our teaser with the hashtag IMR, and tell us what kinds of subjects you want us to cover. And above all, this podcast is the voice of the International Marxist Tendency, a revolutionary Marxist organization fighting to transform society all over the world. So if you're inspired by the ideas you hear on this podcast, then get in touch via our website, marxist.com, find your local IMT section, and learn more about how you can fight to transform society, overthrow capitalism, and build socialism in our lifetimes. I'm Joe Attard, this is IMR, and we'll see you in 2023. listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. 
However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.